Well, hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tommaso here with Alex Dykes. Alex, let's talk a little bit about some new cars. Uh, the new RX is about to launch from Lexus. You've had time, not maybe drive time, but a little bit of time with the product. Mm -hmm. This is a huge product for Lexus. It is the franchise. The number one task is first do no harm. Did they accomplish that? <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, uh, you know, Lexus's mission theoretically should be do no harm, but you know, we have had some, shall we say, controversial styling choices from Lexus over the years, um, and it has managed to not disrupt their most important sales, which are of RX and ES models. Like something like sixty percent of all Lexuses sold are RX and ES, and now NX is climbing up the charts, while everything else seems to be dropping through the floor. Um, but yeah, it's very important that NX go right. And I think that they, they have massaged the design in a direction that's going to make some more traditional Lexus shoppers, I guess, um, a little bit happier. So the, the predator grill is still sort of there. Lexus calls it the spindle grill, but what they've done is they have drastically changed how it appears on the outside. So rather than having a frame around it being very 3d, it now is much more integrated into the front bumper. And importantly, the top part is missing. So all you have left is a more or less, you know, uh, maybe I guess trapezoidal kind of thing with the bottom flared out. Um, and then the top part is really just an homage, I guess, to the upper part of the spindle. Now it's, it's the same color as the body. It's part of the bumper, although it does have a cut line around it, uh, making the front end look much more cohesive. And they've definitely borrowed some items from the Mercedes playbook with little individual elements in the grill that make up the sort of Lexus shape. So it has a, a very premium and modern feel to it. Uh, on the inside, the changes are a little bit more dramatic here and there, but also probably not as dramatic as some people had expected. I was there in, in Dallas to also drive the new Toyota Sequoia um, and also a bunch of their other refreshed products. And the new Sequoia and the Tundra have a huge 12.3 inch LCD instrument cluster on them. And for some reason, the RX still gets by with a seven inch LCD instrument cluster. It looks strangely out of place, honestly, in the dashboard, it looks quite small. Um, same cluster that we find in the Lexus NX. And making it even smaller is that right next to it, we have the large 14-inch screen that we're seeing in all sorts of Lexus products. Um, the dashboard's definitely more dramatic and a little bit larger, roomier on the inside. The RXL is dead, so no three-row Lexus RX anymore. Uh, apparently, nobody was really buying it for the third row, which is not shocking at all because it had the tiniest third row ever seen before, really. Um, and so the new one is adopting the cargo sort of size in the back of the RXL, but in a two-row format. Uh, the other shocking thing, no V6 engine anymore. So it's going to be turbocharged. Uh, there's also going to be a hybrid. Then there's going to be a turbo hybrid. And then there's going to be a plug-in hybrid. So really heavy on the hybrids. Um, and also definitely a departure from them in terms of styling. Yeah, I'm getting very regrettable, like XV40 2006 Toyota Camry vibes from the front <laughs> end of this car. It's got a little bit of a sea lion snout to it, which I'm not sure I love as an alternative spindle. But I will say this, inside, just 
for folks out in cyberspace, the last Lexus RX debuted in 2014 for the 2015 model year. It was a world removed. It had a CD player. It had an incomprehensible trackpad for interacting with the telematics. It was very much of a different generation, and it felt that way inside. So when you're inside the vehicle, 7-inch binnacle display notwithstanding, is it easier to navigate the systems yes. of this car? Uh, I mean, we're talking about a fairly low bar, let's be honest. Um, you know, the, the Lexus trackpad interface was one of my absolute least favorite input methods for a modern system, only eclipsed by the Lexus, you know, joystick thingy that they had for a while. Both of those were truly atrocious. Um, and Lexus is very proud to say that this is the first time that they have an infotainment system designed in North America, interestingly. So all of the previous generations of their products, whether it was a Toyota or a Lexus or a Scion or whatever, all the infotainment software and human interface stuff was all designed in Japan. And now they've actually had a weird switch where worldwide everything is actually designed in the United States. Now, it's not designed in the tech capital of the world, which would be the Bay Area. Uh, it's designed actually in Plano. Uh, interesting twist there as well. Uh, it's loosely based on Google's Android automotive operating system. And I say loosely because nobody's quite sure whether it's just a, a build of Android or whether they're actually calling it Google Automotive, etc. And then it has a Toyota skin over it. So all of the active data services are very Google-like, the mapping, the traffic information is all Google online maps, etc. Um, but there are some quirky choices with the infotainment interface. Like there's no home screen like we see in pretty much every other modern infotainment system out there. So it's very flat. Um, you're either in, in CarPlay or you're not in CarPlay. And if you're not in CarPlay, then you have a row of buttons on the left side and everything is just based off of those buttons. Now, in terms of autonomy, it seems like it's got most of the modern safety tech. I haven't seen any mention of even a level two system available here. Is this mm -hmm. gonna be something added down the line? And do you see that as a deficiency at launch? Yeah, Lexus would not talk about that at all. I would assume that the vehicle is capable of the Lexus Level 2 Plus system, which they're calling Teammate. Uh, that debuted just this year on the Lexus LS600H. Um, it appears that they're going to be expanding availability a little bit. Um, but, you know, in typical Lexus fashion, they're probably going to keep it exclusive in that one expensive model for a while while they debug it, see how it goes, etc. Uh, it's worth noting that Lexus and Toyota, generally speaking, have not really been overly eager when it comes to over-the-air updates or frequent even software updates on the hardware and software systems of their vehicles. So exactly how this is going to change in the future, we don't know. We do know that their multimedia systems are now going to be over-the-air updatable, but it's not going to do over-the-air updates for the entire vehicle, even in the new Lexus RX from what we understand. Um, and that's probably going to be a, a critical component of any next level autonomy system, uh, especially when you start rolling it out into a much more popular vehicle like the Lexus RX. So no word there yet. Um, Lexus is also still trying to decide whether or not the LiDAR sensors that are in the Lexus teammate system in the LS are really going to be there going forward. So at the moment, it appears that all teammate equipped Lexus LS vehicles, which I mean, it's a dozen or so, so far, not very many at all have been shipped. Uh, they all have LiDAR sensors in the front, in the rear, and in the front quarter panels. Uh, actually kind of similar to what we're going to see in the upcoming Polestar 3 and some of the upcoming Volvo models. Um, for similar reasons, detection of vehicles surrounding the vehicle, it's much more reliable with LiDAR than an optical camera-based system. Um, 
so that component could logically be swapped into the RX. Obviously, they swapped it into the LS, which is an older platform. Whether they will do that or not, obviously, we don't know. Now, before we jump to power plants, there are a couple available. Uh, the big question is about the extension of the wheelbase. In theory, we got just mm -hmm. under 2.4 inches added, primarily for the benefit of rear seat passengers. Was this tangible when you were in the vehicle? Could you actually tell the difference? It's hard to tell. Uh, on the inside and on the outside, it's obvious that it's lower. So Lexus, interestingly, went for... I would say more of a station wagon vibe, I would say with the RX. It definitely is less upright than the very first generation RX. It was kind of, you know, upright and bubbly. And then over time, it's gotten this uh, lower, sleeker, longer thing going on, which is really accentuated in this generation. So the roof line's lower, the wheelbase is longer. Um, the interior definitely feels a little bit more relaxed. I would say if anybody is wondering what the inside experience would be, it's somewhere between worlds. It's between the old BMW 5 Series GT, which was sort of the, the pregnant hatchback of the 5 Series lineup, and an actual X5. So it's not as upright as a GLE or an X5, um, but it's not as reclined or sedan-like or true wagon-like as a Volvo V90 or Audi A6 Avant. Now, traditionally, the Lexus buyer is... Well, the Lexus buyer of today is the Buick buyer of the 1960s and 70s, mm -hmm. typically not a person who's striving for every last ounce of performance, power, um, or, or even expressive design, style, attitude. These vehicles tend to be very inward-facing, but for the first time, we're seeing with the F-Sport a Lexus RX that has at least some pretense uh, toward performance. Could you talk a bit about the F-Sport before we discuss the other two powertrains that are available at launch? What's the point of it? Yeah, F-Sport really is designed for, you know, millennials and Gen Xers and Gen Yers that are buying vehicles rather than the baby boomers. Uh, supposedly, these people want something that's a bit different, more expressive, or they want the option in the lineup to have different visual exterior designs. There's no performance improvement in the F-Sport lineup. So same zero to 60 times, same amount of power. Um, they're... They're, they're trying to massage F-Sport into something different, somewhere between the trim package and the full-on F products, like an RCF, where there is extra performance and extra handling ability. So F-Sport has largely been style, maybe a wheel package, maybe a tire package. We now have F-Sport Performance, uh, which is the IS500 F-Sport, for instance. That vehicle has extra performance. And then this next RX is actually going to be the next iteration of that because there's going to be an F-Performance uh, hybrid system, I guess you'd say, in this vehicle. But it's very unlike what Lexus has done before. It's an interesting package because on paper you see 367 horsepower over 400 pound-feet of torque. You think, okay, well, this is a Lexus with a pulse. But when you actually look at the acceleration rates that they're promising, yeah. around 6 seconds, 0 to 60. Not that much better than the previous car's mm -hmm. V6. Um, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how that is really in person because sometimes Lexus has been oddly conservative in their preliminary figures. Uh, no official performance figures are are out yet. They've given us some estimated guidelines-ish. Um, and every time Toyota's done that recently, they've been wildly off. So for instance, the BZ4X, that's part of what made it look so terrible on paper, was that Lexus and, or Toyota rather initially said, eh, it's getting about eight seconds there to 60. And the world, you know, collectively groaned and said, why would anyone buy this? And then it turns out in person, the slowest one's really about seven seconds there to 60. So significantly better. I hope that's what's going to happen here, but we honestly don't know. It is worth noting that the RX 
hybrid, the performance hybrid, is going to be about 100 horsepower or so less than Volvo's hybrid system and apparently uh, a little bit less efficient as well, which is not a good combo from the leader in hybrid efficiency so far. And it's not going to be a plug-in. It's just going to be a regular old hybrid. So how that will really compete in the market compared to some of the German options, which have plug-in hybrid and hybrid systems available in other markets, but in the U.S. a little bit less so, remains to be seen. So now it seems like the standout, and probably if we're honest, the best buy in the lineup is the RX350H hybrid, which is four-cylinder CVT. Um, if it's like what we've seen in the Sienna and the Highlander, it's going to be very efficient, probably low to mid thirties. Uh, did that strike you as the meat of the market option? Do they really expect to sell more of the four cylinder turbos? It's a good question. And they, they intimated that they expect the, the sales volume to be pretty evenly split between hybrids and the non-hybrid options. And the non-hybrid options would include uh, the 2.4 liter turbo in, in this construct, the 2.4 liter turbo and the performance hybrid. So, uh, you know, those, those two vehicles use the same 2.4 liter turbo. Uh, one just adds an electric motor, but sales of that particular engine, they think are going to be pretty similar to the 2.5 liter hybrid based engine. I was surprised that this is not a tweaked version of this hybrid system. It's effectively the exact same one that we find in the NX, the Highlander, the RAV4, everything, you know, really under the Toyota umbrella and the Lexus umbrella with only very minor tweaks. So uh, there are two slight variants of this one version that produces about 215 horsepower. The other one produces about 245 uh, horsepower, depending on the version of the vehicle you're looking at. Um, and really the only difference seems to be software tuning and, and, you know, a little bit of battery management here and there. So now before we jump to our next cars, uh, tell me a little bit about the plug-in hybrid. It's not available at launch. It's coming down the line. Did anybody give you any intel on what this is going to, what it's going to be like, what to expect? We should basically expect the RX plug-in hybrid system and the RAV4 plug-in hybrid system just jammed under the hood. They have not given us any details. However, we do know that it's going to be around 300 horsepower and it will be based around a two and a half liter uh, four-cylinder engine. So basically NX and RAV4 plug-in hybrid. Now, recently you've had some experience with the new Toyota Sequoia. Could you tell us a little bit about that, including what Toyota counts as success mm. in the body-on-frame SUV class? Because they're very modest in the pickup class. Yeah, uh, Sequoia is interesting. So if you guys haven't uh, seen the full review video, uh, be sure and check that out. That's over on the Alex and Autos channel now by the time you're watching this video. Um, I have to say I was a little torn on the Sequoia because I love the look. I think the exterior is great. The mini truck front end is, uh, or actually I shouldn't say mini because it is literally the hood and front fenders from uh, the, the Toyota Tundra. Um, it has a different bumper, which I think actually looks better than the Tundra's front end. If I could swap that bumper onto a Tundra, that would be my preferred look. But it has a bold, very square look. It looks really great. Now, trouble starts to happen when you hop inside the Sequoia because it manages to have less legroom and less cargo room than a Highlander. The interior is wider. So if you want to put three adults across the second row or, you know, four by eight sheets of something, they're going to fit in the Sequoia. They wouldn't fit in a Highlander. But just the way that this vehicle is packaged with that extraordinarily long and square hood up front, um, 
interior practicality is pretty darn low. The third row is the least accommodating among large SUVs in America. It is very, very tight. Uh, and you'll actually find more room in the third row of a Highlander than you will in the Sequoia. Now, is there any thought with you know, the phase out of the Land Cruiser of uh, maybe trying to build a stripped down Sequoia that's more off-road oriented, something that maybe could go head to head with like an Expedition Timberline? Is there any kind of movement towards offering people a bigger forerunner? No, definitely not. Uh, the forerunner will theoretically get replaced eventually, and that will be that that size category vehicle. A Sequoia is firmly in Tahoe expedition uh, conquering you know territory, and Toyota's been pretty upfront that they don't seem to to have any plans for a stripped down or lower lower end version. Uh, it's all going to be hybrid. It's all going to be twin turbo. Uh, rear wheel drive is is an option, of course, but most of the sales they think are going to be four wheel drive. Now, if you are going to just use it as, I mean, let's be honest, there are plenty of people who are just going to sit in the front rows and never use the back seats on a regular basis. Is it otherwise a pleasant place to be, or do you feel that it's lacking in any way compared to a Tahoe, compared to an Expedition, or even for that matter, compared to an Escalade? Because some people will yeah. load these things up with options. It fully loaded, it will get just over 80,000. So it's, it's you know, a tier below Escalade, Grand Wagoneer, and Navigator. So, uh, you know, if you are looking for a vehicle with lots of options and some real wood that won't break the bank, it's going to be less expensive than those alternatives as well. But it's definitely not going to be as premium feeling on the inside or behind the wheel. The one big law with the Sequoia is its ride quality, I think. They ditched the independent rear suspension because they wanted greater parts commonality between the Sequoia and the and the Tundra in the lineup and of course the upcoming Tacoma likely as well. And as a result, it just rides like a pickup truck, which is not the way pretty much everything else in this segment rides. The Armada's ride was a little bit harsh, I think, you know, compared to, uh, you know, the current generation Tahoe and Yukon and Wagoneer, et cetera. But now the Sequoia actually is probably the harshest riding full-size SUV in the United States. Uh, the rear end can feel jittery over broken pavement, especially if there aren't a lot of people in the vehicle. Um, and washboard pavement definitely will make the rear end shimmy around a bit, which I found particularly surprising. Now, we were all driving pre-production vehicles, so it's entirely possible there could be some sort of bushing tweak or something like that uh, for the final delivery of the Sequoia, but I would not expect a huge difference. It's probably going to be 99.9% .9 of what we drove. And given just how much interest there is, at least among the big three, in offering a wheelbase option, mm -hmm. is that something we can ever expect to see from Toyota? Yeah, again, probably not. Uh, Toyota's very, very focused on efficiency and, and sales volume, et cetera. The Sequoia is the slowest selling entry in this segment. Uh, Armadas outsold it last year by about three to one. So with that in mind, that's probably why we see such a huge parts commonality with the Tundra. Also, why we see only the twin turbo hybrid engine in the vehicle. It just made more sense to make it as as streamlined as possible. Um, some might actually be surprised that that Toyota even decided to offer a new Sequoia based on those sales. You know, we ha have Land Cruiser gone, so that could help move some of those shoppers either over to the LX or over to the Sequoia, depending on what they're looking for. Um, but we're talking about a fairly small market for a, a fairly expensive vehicle to design and engineer. Okay, so. Do we expect there will be a Lexus version that could perhaps fix some of these shortcomings by going back to independent suspension, adding an air mm -hmm. suspension option, maybe competing with the Grand Wagoneer, the Escalade, a vehicle in that price and luxury class? 
Uh, no, definitely not. So according to Lexus, there is a Lexus version. It would be called the LX600. Um, the LX does share a, a, a huge number of structural components and design components with the Toyota Sequoia, um, but it's definitely more focused on someone that wants a luxury Land Cruiser. No third row, of course, in the LX, really. Uh, it, it theoretically is there, but it's pretty small. Um, although, actually, now that I say that statement out loud, uh, it's better than the third row in the Sequoia because there's no battery under there in the LX. So, you know keep that in mind, I would say. Um, but the next Lexus product that is going to have three rows is going to be a larger three row crossover sized between the LX and the RX. So the reason the RXL is gone is because the, you know, the vehicle that is long rumored as the Lexus TX, which I think doesn't roll off the tongue quite right. Uh, that is supposed to be a larger basically based on Highlander vehicle that is bigger. So sort of um, Audi Q7 sized, most likely, probably not as big as uh, as the, um, the, uh, the X7 or GLS, but somewhere between those two worlds. So I guess from a gas guzzler to no gas at all, Polestar 3. Are people going to be able to tell the difference between this and the Polestar 2? And mm. what counts as success for the Polestar 3's launch? Uh, yeah, it, the uh, I was really intrigued by this launch. Um, so Polestar 3, if for those that don't know, this is going to be Polestar's third vehicle, quite logically, that is going in order. No particular rhyme or reason, apparently, to the form factor of the vehicle, just numerical order of launch. Uh, this is the first vehicle that's going to be built on the new all-electric platform uh, that's going to be common between Volvo and Polestar. So the new XC90 or the XC90 spiritual successor, if it's not called XC90, is going to be built on the same platform. This is also the first Polestar that that completed that completed rather about half of its design process at least as a Polestar. Everything else we've seen from the brand so far started very distinctively as a Volvo. Um, and so this one definitely looks less Volvo-like on the outside and on the inside. Um, I think it looks different enough in both of those areas that it's going to be easily distinguishable from the Polestar 2. It looks sleeker, it's sexier, it's less boxy than the Polestar 2. The proportions are also a little bit more appropriate, I would say, for an EV because of the way this, this platform was designed uh, to accommodate those systems from the ground up. Uh, and it's also really going to highlight the direction for Volvo in a way because the hardware of the Polestar 2, the bones of it, is going to be also found in upcoming Volvo uh, sedans, wagons, and SUVs. Now, I've heard that this vehicle is going to be about cayenne sized but also in some circumstances cayenne priced so it represents mm -hmm. a pretty big step up market from the polestar 2. we had polestar 1 which is a showpiece plug-in hybrid coupe it was very expensive we had polestar 2 which particularly in its two-wheel drive variant was designed to be accessible this sits somewhere between them um mm -hmm. does this complete the model line or uh, is there another shoe left to fall Oh, there are definitely more vehicles because uh, we already have seen some filings for the Polestar 5, which of course means there's a Polestar 4 uh, that's going to be lurking in the works here somewhere. Um, Polestar is definitely trying to go after uh, the sort of the core price range wise, the core and the upper end of the Volvo pricing lineup. So if you take a look at the corollary Volvo in the lineup, 
Polestar vehicles are either right there in the meat and between the meat and the upper end of the, the pricing line. Um, and Volvo has been pretty good at commanding higher MSRPs on XC90s and S90s, uh, one should mention. Um, and Polestar's ATP seems to be a little bit higher than that as well. I think that that should be fine since they're a new all-electric startup brand that's trying to be more tech-forward and uh, all, all the Volvo technologies and Polestar technologies that are, that are jointly developed will debut in the Polestar first. So this is going to be the one... Uh, with greater levels of autonomy. It's going to have a, a ton of LiDAR sensors standard on the vehicle. Uh, it's going to be apparently faster, more powerful than the current lineup of electric vehicles from Polestar and Volvo, which already started at around 400 horsepower. So it's going to take that to the next level. It's going to have their latest battery pack with theoretically about 300 miles of range. Yeah, the WLTP, they're saying it's going to be 372. So... Mm -hmm. Again, that's a very optimistic cycle for our friends out in cyberspace. 300 does sound fairly safe. Uh, it is going to have LIDAR hardware on board, which opens the door to expanded levels of autonomy. Perhaps this could be level three autonomy. Uh, computing power comes from NVIDIA. And with a higher price point, again, so once you start talking about Porsche Cayenne, especially when options are taken into account, mm. that can be very ambitious. Now, they do want to hit 290,000 global sales annually by 2025. And as Alex mentioned, this is the first of a new product coming every year until then. Um, yep. Would you say this is also a Model X competitor based on size and price? It's probably going to land between worlds. That's, I would say it's probably going to be more Audi e-tron. So it's not going to be a three row. So definitely not Model X. Um, the three row would be the XC90 uh, spiritual successor, which Rumor says it's probably going to be called a Volvo Embla, which sounds like a horrible name to me. Um, but theoretically, that would be the electric alternative with three rows is going to be that. And the Polestar 3 apparently is going to be a two-row vehicle, at least for now. We don't know any true details just yet. Uh, we will know them on October 3rd, however. So if anybody wants to set their alarm clock, set it for October 3rd. Uh, we know this is going to be built in South Carolina, so obviously lots of synergies with the Volvo lineup because we built in a Volvo factory in South Carolina. Um, and for viewers that, that don't know and listeners that don't know, um, Polestar is half owned by Volvo and half owned by their parent company, Geely. And the reason there's so much Volvo going on in this, uh, this construct is because uh, unlike other luxury car companies that have a mainstream brand, um, Volvo and Polestar do not run away from their, their part sharing and their, their tie-ups, et cetera, because it's all very convoluted. So every time you go as the, as a media member, uh, every time you go to a Polestar event, there's, you know, the Volvo section, the Polestar section, it's all jammed in there to make a sausage that comes out shaped like a Polestar. Um, I find that somewhat refreshing. Um, and there are definitely some advantages to the consumer. So, even though you have to buy your Polestar through a Polestar store and you have to schedule service through a Polestar scheduling app, what's actually going on behind the scenes is the power of Volvo and their international sales and service network. So uh, all the shipping logistics is Volvo. The manufacturing is all Volvo. Uh, it's serviced at a Volvo dealer, although you can't take your car to a Volvo dealer. You have to use the app and then the uh, company picks it up, takes it to the Volvo dealer, it's serviced, it's then returned to you, et cetera. So they have that that shipping logistics and parts and warranty and all that sort of stuff behind them from Volvo, which has allowed them to grow more rapidly. Um, and I think that the experiment in America is just that. When you take a look at Polestar's global sales, they're doing pretty well in China. They're doing fairly well in Europe as well. 
Um, and so I think that the majority of that sales growth will be those two markets, not necessarily the United States. I do think we'll get a better sense of their potential in the United States when the Polestar 4 launches, because that's the one that is going to be about Mach-E sized. It's going to be about Model Y sized, which is probably the perfect size for an EV crossover at this point. In addition mm -hmm. to the size, I think the pricing, too, is going to be more meat of the market. The, the Polestar 3 is going to be very expensive. If people are expecting this to be another step down from the higher-priced EVs the last 10 years, this is not one of those accessibility plays. This is going to be a very premium vehicle. Uh, in the absence of a Polestar 1 Halo car, it is going to be the flagship in the United States. Uh, I think it will be interesting to see how it compares uh, to upscale luxury crossovers in the electric class. Because it's hard at this point to say something electric gunning for Cayenne size has an obvious competitor. You did mention the e-tron, which will become more interesting if the so-called 300-mile e-tron actually happens. But as of right now, size-wise, yes, e-tron, range-wise, hard to compare the two. Right. Yeah, I mean, I you could you could logically say Polestar 3 could be a competitor to the upcoming EQE and the obviously upcoming EQE SUV, which... Again, does not roll off the tongue well. Since we now have an EQS SUV, logically we're going to have an EQE SUV. Um, and also BMW is likely going to be giving us some other form factor vehicles. But currently the iX probably is going to be about this same size. Like uh, iX is about X5 sized, so definitely bigger than Model Y, but not quite Model X. So I think that is the, the, the closest corollary currently on the market um, to the Polestar 3. Honestly, the iX is really darn good. So Polestar 3 is definitely going to have a bit of a headwind. Uh, and pricing-wise, again, pretty similar. The last iX that we had in for review uh, started at 86 and change and was just over 100. So um, you can definitely command some high price tags here. Uh, without a doubt, again, if they've got Porsche pricing structure in mind, it's going to be fairly high and also possibly escalate quickly with options. Mm -hmm. so, and options are really interesting because Polestar yeah. does seem to be more aggressive at some uh, at, at options and packages and tweaks here and there than some of the other more established auto manufacturers, which was theoretically part of the goal for Polestar was to create this arm of, Polestar, of Volvo and their parent company that could be more nimble and more reactive. So, you know, we just have a new special edition out this year with more power and more bells and whistles and whatever. And um, and they do do they do seem to do uh, over their updates more regularly, I would say, than the rest of the luxury car competition and more meaningful over the air updates so far. Um, whether that will continue and whether they will ever see the the level of update that we see in Tesla, that remains to be seen. But they are tweaking around the edges a little bit more aggressively. So watch this space if you are interested in the Polestar 3. We'll have more details, including EPA range ratings, uh, hopefully before the end of the year. Would you say that's probably correct? Yeah, we probably will see them, uh, if not around October 3rd, sometime between October 3rd and the actual end of the year. Uh, you know, obviously the future can change, but that appear, appears to be where, where we'll see things. So from the gas-guzzling Sequoia to the no-gas free pass Polestar 3 to gas and demand destruction. What I can tell you is that compared to this period, yeah, I know, let's see how I daisy-changed that right there. Um, compared to this period last year, we're seeing about 3 to 5% less demand 
for gasoline, which is remarkable on a couple of levels, if yeah. only because this year so many more people are commuting again. Uh, office occupancy was about 20% this time last year. It's about 43% now. And gas consumption is still down. It's down about 3% over the last seven weeks compared to the corresponding period. Are prices finally hitting hard enough that people are driving less? Is that exactly what we're seeing? I don't know. That's a good question. I can't wait to see uh, you know, some data from AAA and other sources that, that can monitor that a little bit more closely. But, um, you know, gasoline's a fairly inelastic uh, demand curve. You know, there's the, I, I do not alter my driving habits when gasoline goes up or down. Uh, I don't know about you. What's your gas buying habit? Do you actually seek out cheap gas? I will generally go to the same station that I know is generally not, you know, userous in their price tag, but I don't pay attention to how much the gasoline costs. I stick the card in, I take it out, I try not to think about the cost, and I just roll on to work because... Driving less is simply not an option. I have to get from, from home to the office, and that requires a certain amount of fuel. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I am sad when I am driving a big pickup truck or a big SUV that I have to fill more regularly. Um, but, you know, like many Americans, I, I don't have the choice because I need the content for the channel. So I'm I'm just driving what I'm given. Um, and, uh, you know, it is interesting that the customer choices seems to customer choice seems to only be, uh, you know, mindful of the cost of gasoline for a moment. <laughs> you yeah. know, we had we had our last gasoline spike about you know 15, 20 years ago, and for a moment people started buying Priuses, and then the moment gas got cheaper, they stopped, and everybody went right back to big SUVs. And big SUVs are really hot right now. Um, you know, look at look at Jeep Wrangler on the sales chart. You know, if you're at all concerned about gasoline, why on earth would you buy a Wrangler over literally anything else in that SUV segment? Um, fuel economy is atrocious. But, you know, the American public does, does generally not seem to put an enormous priority on gasoline in, in real terms. They like to complain about it. Everybody loves complaining about the cost of the pump. But actually doing something about it, that is an entirely different matter. Um, yeah, just look at how many people are very obsessed with government fuel economy standards and how dare the government say we should drive more efficient vehicles. Yeah, you know, the thing about gas and demand destruction is that we might be seeing a little of it right now, but you got to remember what didn't previously discourage consumers. No one decided to call off the hunt when full-size truck average transaction prices crested $50,000. Yeah. But feeding the beast, that is offensive to people. You, you have seen, though, exactly what you described, that people talk more about changing their habits than acting on them. And that's because oftentimes when you hear polls taken regarding things like $5 a gallon gas and whether people would consider EVs at that point. And then we hit $5 a gallon gas and people say, oh, well, maybe I'd consider an EV at like five fifty or 6 And they yeah. have that kind of extending horizon of like what gas price it would take to get them into a vehicle they don't ordinarily want to buy. Um, so I do think there is some resistance on that front. I do think we're seeing a little bit of demand destruction because there's no other way to explain how Memorial Day driving habits uh, tapered off one year later into the pandemic recovery, like it should have been higher, if only because more right. people are driving in the office. I'm lucky that I don't have to buy gas. I plug in my Chevy Volt at my company. I live one <laughs> mile away. I walk most days. I go to one gas station and 
the gas station has the lowest price, but we're talking I'm saving five cents a gallon. I fill up a Corvette there because that's the only vehicle I have that I, I quote, need to fill with gas. It's purely discretionary. It's a fun car. Every journey starts yeah. and ends at my garage. Like it's it's nonsense. But yeah. I, I mean, I have to say that like if I had an F-150 and I'm doing contract work with it, I might try to find the cheapest gas station if only to save over the course of hundreds of gallons. But people are not going to curtail trips. And what I really wonder about isn't whether they're going to use less gas in the short term, but whether this will actually change their buying habits, because yes. that's real commitment. And that is that is a tricky question, because, uh, you know, EVs are hot right now. Um, plug in hybrids a little less so, interestingly, but it's hard to find anything with a new set of wheels on a new car dealer lot. So we don't really know what the customer preference balance would look like between regular gasoline vehicles, mild hybrids, hybrids, plug-in hybrids, and full EVs, because there aren't a lot of anything hanging out on a dealer lot for us to really see what this natural customer selection would be like. It's also a tricky construct because with very, very limited exceptions. We also don't have the same vehicle available with this selection of drivetrains, which I think is also an interesting point. Um, and in vehicles that we do see a available selection of well-designed hybrid, well-designed plug-in hybrid, well-designed EV, totally separate construct because that just doesn't exist right now, we do actually see an interesting motion, movement towards hybridization. So I would say the Toyota and Lexus product line is an excellent example. So you can get a RAV4 that looks like a RAV4 and you can get it with a plug, uh, just with a hybrid without a plug or with a regular gasoline engine. And about 30 something, 40 something percent of all RAV4 sales, depending on the month you're looking at, are hybrids of some some portion or another. And that blew Toyota's mind because the previous generation RAV4 was around 20 something percent. They thought this generation would be about 25%. But because the hybrid system in Toyota's lineup has finally re re reached approximate price parity um, with their regular engine, and it's very, very low compromise, same cargo area, still has a spare tire, still drives like a regular RAV4, et cetera. Customer demand has been extraordinarily high. Also with Highlander, which helped them you know, make the decision to make Sienna hybrid only. Um, now on the Volvo lineup for luxury car customers, we see something very similar. So in the Volvo construct, um, same vehicle, we have you know, XC90 with a turbocharged engine or XC90 with a plug-in hybrid. Over half of their sales in California, even going into the pandemic, were the plug-in hybrid model. Because not only is it no compromise, it actually gets better performance than the regular non-hybrid model, while still feeling like a pretty traditional gasoline vehicle. So it does appear that if we're talking about actual A versus B, or you know, uh, same vehicle, same, same category, et cetera, do you want the hybrid one? Do you want the plug-in hybrid one, et cetera? There are a reasonable number of customers that want that. Um, the problem is when you look at some of these other studies, you know, it's like, would you want a Ford Edge or would you want a Mach-E? Well, it's not the same vehicle because Mach-E is quite a bit smaller on the inside. It doesn't drive like a Ford Edge, et cetera. Do you want a Tesla Model 3 or, you know, a, a Toyota Avalon? These are not the same thing either. So those comparisons are a little bit trickier. It's also difficult to figure out because right now, vehicle sales are basically at recessionary levels and it's entirely <laughs> down to supply because a lot of folks have said within the industry we'd be looking at a 16 to 17 million car year market 
based on the demand baseline, waiting oh, yeah. lists, expressed interest, uh, people ready with financing. But we're at recessionary levels. So this is purely supply driven. Even if there were demand destruction in larger vehicles, full-size trucks, SUVs, it might be expressed in terms of shorter waiting lists. And the automaker doesn't care whether it's got a one-month wait or a six-month wait, as long as there's a customer for each vehicle. So it could be a while before we're really aware of whether demand destruction for vehicles results from higher vehicle gas prices. Right. And the last time we saw customer preference shifts, due to gas prices, we were in a in a, a market where average dealer dwell time was, you know, 60 days plus depending on the brand. So I mean, if you're a traditional American brand, Ram, Chevy, Ford, etc, the dealer lot dwell time could have been over 100 days. Um, and some dealers would deliberately age their inventory because they would get uh, a bigger, bigger uh, kickback basically from the manufacturer for getting rid of the older vehicle in their inventory. So those, you know, those mega dealers that you find all over America, they're probably hurting right now because their entire structure is built on on having a back lot where cars just age out and they they have to start actually paying on them. They pay to the manufacturer, but it's worth it because in the end you make more money on the sale if your car sat on the lot for 120 days before it was sold. Um, and now dealer lot dwell time is practically zero. Uh, they come right off the truck, they get sold, and it doesn't really seem to matter whether you're Alfa Romeo or you're Tesla. Uh, you know, cars get sold right as soon as they're built. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult to tell whether people are driving less because of pricing or buying more efficient vehicles. But I did see a little sort of a canary in the coal mine, and this might be passing, this might be permanent. I remember in 2008, the last time gas prices hit a record high, like a historic record high that people remembered. Um, there was this move to get old 1990s and early 2000s Geo and Chevy Metros with the <laughs> three-cylinder engines because they all got 45 mm -hmm. to 50 miles a gallon. And people were pulling them out of backyards and lakes and fields, refurbishing them enough to sell them, and then putting them on the market when people were gas gouged. Uh, so I saw a bunch of Geo and Chevy Metros at my auto detailer this past week. And it was immediately clear to me what was happening. Someone in the Philadelphia area where we've got high price guests, they are buying those cars. They are sending them to a detailer to do the best he possibly can before throwing them up on AutoTrader and Craigslist. The last time I saw this happen was 2008. So, I mean, that's real. That's a Band-Aid. Yep. That's not a lasting trend in the new car market. But it is a sign that at least someone is mm -hmm. thinking about fuel prices and driving. Yep. And let's be frank. I mean, now is the time that everybody is polishing off any used car of any description, practically. And even if it's a, you know, a Ford excursion that, you know, was lucky to get seven miles per gallon. Um, now is the time to dust that off, pull it out of the barn and, and get rid of it because used car prices are still high. Um, you know, Toyota recently even said that the, their their corporate estimates believe it would have been a high 17 million unit car market if they could build everything. If everybody out there could build everything they could possibly could, they think there are enough willing customers out there to buy nearly 18 million cars in one calendar year in the United States, which would be absolutely amazing. That would be best car sales year ever territory. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're maybe looking at a 14 million car a year, maybe something like that this year? Yeah, some of the months, if you annualize them, it's like 11 to 12. It's pretty bad. The yep. bottom line is people do want cars. There is demand. I don't think we're going to be able to tell from car sales whether gas prices are destroying demand. I do think we'll be able to tell from the amount people are driving. And like you said, AAA will really have more definitive 
uh, figures on this. And probably later in the summer, once we're deep into driving season, I think we'll yeah. only know that demand destruction is occurring, frankly, when gas prices start to fall. Because if you look at the fundamentals, refinery capacity, oil supplies, geopolitical factors, uh, pandemic recovery, um, and we're still waiting to see what a COVID recovery within the Chinese economy might look like. Um, combined with European embargoes and American embargoes on Russian oil, there are a lot of factors that are pushing prices up. Unless we see pricing fall, I don't think we can conclude that meaningful demand destruction is occurring. Yeah, it's a little hard to tell. And manufacturers right now in such a constricted market, manufacturers are certainly seeming to prioritize more expensive models, which is part of why we've seen the average car price go up, because the average car rolling off the delivery truck is more expensive than before. This is the time where not only are dealers making more money, but auto manufacturers are really trying to make as much money as possible quite logical you know if you're uh, if you're Toyota why would you build the base trim of anything if you're Ford why would you build an XLT truck when you could build you know a Lariat or a Platinum or whatever you know they're going to sell doesn't matter what it is roll it onto the dealer lot someone will buy it um, so now is certainly seemingly the time to maximize profits on some of these models that are out there uh, and that definitely can skew fuel economy uh, pref buying preferences you know maybe maybe I wanted the Grand Cherokee with the six-cylinder engine uh, or the plug-in hybrid but when I pulled up to the dealer lot all they had was you know a $70,000 overland trim with the V8 and I need a new vehicle so that's the one I buy um, there's definitely a lot of that going on too. Now it's time for our game segment. We're going to play a little game called Road Rage. We're going to start by giving both Tim and Alex a topic or a sentiment about the car industry, and they are going to defend or rebut that statement. And we're going to start with the first statement. And Alex, you're going to go first with defending this, and then Tim, I'm going to have you rebut. And I feel like I should have a monocle for the for the people on YouTube that are watching. I should have a monocle that I'm just I should. whimsically popping in and out. With my pipe. That, yeah, <laughs> that'd be that would be cool. Um, you're each going to have 45 seconds to do your side of the argument. And the first statement is, it is more fun to drive a fast car slow than a slow car fast. And Alex, I am, I am defending seconds. this. You are defending this. Oh, well, okay. Uh, Ready, go. More fun to drive a fast car slow than a slow car fast. Correct. Um, yeah, I mean... Who needs all that speed anyway? You can go the same speed in your Corvette and your Ferrari as you can in Nissan Versa. And that is just so much more fun. I, nothing thrills me more than my favorite winding mountain road at five miles an hour in a Ferrari because you can piss everybody off so much. It's not about the driving enjoyment. It's about the people watching because everybody is like, who is this dickhead in the Ferrari going so incredibly slow? That fills me with joy to absolutely no end because then not only do I have the Ferrari and I'm better than everybody else on the road, but I can show them because they're all stacked up behind me. So I'm leading the parade and everyone wants to be a parade leader. All right. That's good enough for me. All right, Tim, are you ready? Yes. All right, your time starts now. All right, so I'm going to argue in favor of driving a slow car fast. Every great sports car of the 50s and 60s was a slow car that you could drive fast. No MG, no Austin Healey. For that matter, no six-cylinder Corvette was fast. 
but at the limit of adhesion, you feel like you're going a thousand miles an hour. It's all the perception of speed. With something like a Miata, objectively, it's not that much quicker than a Toyota Camry. Alex has made that clear and he's driven them both. But it's the idea that in the Miata, you feel like you're going so much faster. Your butt's on the ground, your hair is in the air, you've got the noise, the clatter. These cars don't just go slow. They go slow while sounding and feeling fast, and that is the magic. There you go. I was, I'm glad right. you mentioned the MX-5, because otherwise I would have had to have thrown it under the bus there. <laughs> well, actually, MX-5 will be coming up in a future uh, statement. We'll get to that oh. in a minute. But, Ooh. all right, the next one is alphanumeric car names are harder for consumers to remember. Alex, I think you're going to defend that one, correct? Yes. Uh, okay, okay. Got it. So uh, I'm ready. Uh, alphabet soup is stupid. I mean, BMW and Mercedes have had huge success doing it over decades, but what does that matter? It doesn't mean it's right. I mean, everybody, come on. I mean, just because Mercedes does it doesn't mean you should do it. I mean, if Mercedes jumped off a bridge, would you jump off the bridge too? That's what my mom has been telling me for decades, many, many decades now. Um, but you know what? Let's just call it a Mercedes Sasquatch or something. Let's call it, you know, a Gwendelwagen, you know, I'm mispronouncing that one, obviously, but let's stick Take the G off, put the full name on there. It'll take up the entire bumper because German names are incredibly long and there are no spaces. They just jam all those words together, jam them all together, stick them on the bumper. Who needs it? I mean, that alphabet soup didn't work for Lincoln. They, they've you know changed the, uh, the, the, uh, the table on that one. Cadillac is still trying to make it work. And does anyone want a Cadillac with the number soup on the back? No, no. Everybody wants, you know, a Volvo, a Volvo Embla. I almost called it a Volvo there. Sorry, everybody. And that's no. what I'm going to you off. A Volvo. <laughs> Evolve at Embla because that is so much better than XC100. Oh, uh, alrighty, well, Tim, let's go. I'm going to say that alphanumeric works well when it's done well, which means that some of the best German brands have given us alphanumerics that are all timers. In Europe, even when the SL550 became available, people continued to ask for the SL500, so they continued to name the European market SL550 the SL500 because that was such a strong brand. When you keep it simple and do it right, it's memorable. Z8, everyone remembers what it was. Z3, everyone remembers it was like an expensive Miata, but the important thing is that they remember it. That's the key. Now, XT5, I don't know. You'll remember it by the sound it makes, not the way it's said. The bottom line is something like a CT5 Blackwing proves you can have the Alpha and the Numeric and the great car all in one. The Alpha and the Omega one might say. Now, I will say that, you know, side side note to the actual game here, it is hilarious when some companies still today seem to get the name wrong somehow. Like, did you know that Solterra apparently means spinster in Spanish? And... Uh, the PR people from Subaru seemed really shocked by this. I was shocked. I don't speak Spanish. I had no idea. But in a video in the comment section, someone pointed that out. I Googled it. The Googles told me it was correct. I asked the Subaru people and they were just mind blown. Um, so, you know, we don't have to be in the 1970s to have a, a naming go wrong. Yeah, ask what, is interesting. what Escalade means. Yeah, who knows? But the busy forks isn't better. So, you know, busy forks. Yeah, I, I dodged that minefield. Okay. Interesting points there. All right. Next topic. Um, we're going to go with convertibles suck and they deserve to die off. 
They they really do. I mean, let's be honest. A sunroof is better, especially a big sunroof. Uh, you know, convertibles, they're just stupid. That's why nobody buys them anymore. Just look at the sales numbers. They're already dying off. No one even has to kill them. They're practically dead already. If you want a car that drives like a wet, a wet noodle and you can only use two days a year, then the convertible is exactly the right vehicle for you because all the other times that you're driving it with the lid up, you have all the horrible compromises of the creaky leaky roof and you know the roof that's fading. Maybe it's not even painted painted right if it's the hard top one. And let's be honest, most of the hard tops look stupid too. Have you ever seen a hard top uh, Mazda Miata? It looks really weird. It does not look right. The soft top, not very practical at all. They're easy to break into. Someone's out there slashing and slicing them all the time. Uh, easy to steal your stuff. They're just stupid. Shouldn't exist. Done. There you okay. go. I'm dead inside too. <laughs> well, I'm going to acknowledge up front that there's a special place in hell for four-cylinder automatic transmission Mustang convertibles rented in Florida. <laughs> that said, there's a lot to recommend the convertible. How else are you going to show off your Mowgli attitude if you're too scared to ride a motorcycle? Convertible to the rescue. I make my point right there. Um, how else are you going to show that you had enough money to buy a proper sports car, but not the skill to take a proper six-speed hardtop to the track? Again, it's the convertible. It's all about the image. It's about the wind in the hair. Even if your hair is receding beyond the point of return, the point is convertibles are all about style. And in America, we're willing to pay for style, even at the expense of substance. Wow. No, no, no lines from Vanilla Ice. No girlies on standby or anything like that. What? Well, <laughs> I'm rolling in my 5.0. Means it's not the rental. Not the rental version. That would be a V6. Wow. All righty. Next topic, and Alex, this will be sort of related to some conversation you and I recently had. Oh, yeah. uh, louvers make a car look cooler. Okay, defending the louvers. Well, you know what? I think the first thing we need to do is readdress this cool thing because louvers are not cool. They are rad, and rad is way better than cool. And nothing says performance like looking like a 1980s reject DeLorean because that is the ultimate in cool chic. So why would I want my McLaren to look like a McLaren now when I can make it look like an IROC Z with all the accessories that were all the rage when I was an infant or really a fetus, really? Because that's, that's what the image that I want to portray is that I, on the inside of my louvered cool thing, I have the coolest turnips. I have the coolest stapled pant legs. I'm pegging my pant legs. I have gel everywhere. That is the look that I want because everybody knows that the 80s, not only are they back, they are back and on fire, just like those louvers. All righty. Tim. Louvers represent the worst of an era. It's like a toupee for a car. No one's being fooled. Consider what comes with the louver, velour, half vinyl roofs, rich Corinthian leather on occasion. Let the entire era down to leisure suits needs to die. The louvers need to go. We can have fun cars without the slat back look because at the end of the day, we know they were all slow as hell. DeLorean DMC, 135 horsepower, Volvo power, no thanks. <laughs> the louver needs to die with the rest of that era. Point of clarification, I am curious, why does anybody actually want the louver? Like who looks at the louver and goes, that is that is a must have. Is it just because they're worried about sun coming in? I, what's the function? Uh, I don't know. I mean, for me, when I, I, I when I see them, I think Lamborghinis. So I guess people 
want their car to look more like a Lamborghini, but it's like, you're not fooling me. So I don't know. (laughs) It all all seems wrong. I mean, it's going to be hard to clean. You know, maybe they help keep sun coming in. I don't know. I don't get it. Never did. (laughs) I don't get it. To to this day, I don't get it. But hey, it's back on the new DeLorean, so we might get to talk about it. Oh, that's true. Right. Maybe I was too quick. All right. The next statement is that large rims with skinny tires are not worth the sacrifice in ride quality. Alex, you are defending starting now. Clarification. So how skinny and how large are we talking? I'm talking like 20s and up with the very narrow profile tires. You know, you're going to get no sidewall or a lot. So we're thinking we're thinking donk with 15 series tires. Something like that, yeah. Okay, yes, the those are definitely style. dumb. Those are definitely dumb. I can handle I can handle a 20-inch rim and maybe 45 or 50 series tires in the right car, but anything smaller is just stupid. Mounting them is really expensive. Uh, if nothing else about the ride quality, which is going to be horrific, and hitting a pothole, which you may not survive. Um, I mean, the cost of mounting the damage to the rims, that's excessive too. Uh, you know, lot, not too many places will really put extreme low-profile tires on some of those larger wheels. You have to find the right shop, pay through the nose, etc. Um, for what? A dubious improvement in looks, which the wheel wells weren't designed for to begin with. Uh, nobody needs a Toyota Camry with 24-inch rims. That's just stupid. All right, Tim, rebutting time. Ready to go. It doesn't matter who you are, whether Lewis Hamilton or just a guy on the street, F1 is going to skinny sidewalls this year, and so far it's working out just fine. Now, if you want to say, I'm rolling on a concept car for the road, what better way to do it than to strap up some rubber band sidewalls on your 24s? Fact, high performance or high performance look, you get the same thing when you buy the skinny sidewall on the giant tire. Even if you're just a poser, In the 2000s, remember, we spent a lot of money on rims. Today, you can save a lot of cash by spending all your vanity money on a really skinny sidewall. You don't even necessarily have to drive it. It looks good just standing still. People will assume you're either rich or very fast. (laughs) That's what we always say about Tim. He's fast. There we go. (laughs) I got my ZZ Top Eliminator shirt. Ah. Very cool. This is why everybody needs to also subscribe to the YouTube channel so you can actually see what Tim is talking about. That's a fact. Pictures <laughs> and words. All right. Well, that's the game. Thanks for playing, and I'm signing off. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs>there are some vehicles that are underrated in this market and i think alex and i have a couple of selections to share with you i'm going to roll out with a car that frankly a lot of folks didn't consider because it wasn't available at any price both <laughs> batteries were replaced in the mass chevy bolt recall but the bolt euv is now back on the market and if you're shopping 2023 it comes tidy with a new 6300 price decrease so if you're buying an LT, the base price is now going to be $28,195. If you're buying a Premier, the price now starts at $32,695. The EUV is available with Super Cruise, a $2,200 option that I would probably just as soon skip. But the point here is you're getting over 250 miles of range. You're getting a vehicle with a decent amount of interior volume as it is larger than the old Bolt EV. Um, I believe an extra 2.9 inches, yeah, a little bit, <laughs> <My hair. laughs> 2.9 inches of uh, of wheelbase, better seats that no longer leave a mark on human bodies, 
And overall, it's just a very efficient, cost-effective way to drive when you consider that mm -hmm. you can now get the EUV Premier for less than the original cost of the standard 2017 Bolt. So that is, even without the federal tax credit, it is now cheaper than the 2017 version of itself. I can't think of any car that's gotten cheaper since 2017. Yeah, it needed to. Uh, you know, I, I think the Bolt is a solid little little electric hatch. Uh, I, I, I have troubles calling it underrated because I think it's rated exactly where it needs to be. <laughs> I mean, it's I not look... it's not offensive, but it's yeah. not fabulous. No, it's not fabulous in any way. But then again, neither is the BZ4X. And I guarantee you the 13,000 that Toyota is going to bring into the country mm -hmm. will evaporate like a snowball hitting the surface of the sun. And that yeah. is not a meaningful, better commuter appliance than the EUV. Like if you have to drive, I don't know, 80 oh, miles know. a day, <laughs> like it, neither one of these is a road trip car. They're both commuters. The, so the problem with the BZ4X is the name, but I would say that the the busy forks, as I like to call it, um, is better in pretty much every single way than the Bolt, except its price tag. I mean, it's more comfortable, it's larger, it's more common, it has a bigger cargo area, it's all-wheel drive, it doesn't charge terribly quickly, but it charges faster than a Chevy Bolt does. It's true, but at the same time, if you just need a new car to drive around town, Big enough for kids in a young family, maybe maybe not when they get large. If you need something that comes with a as long new as you don't need child seats. Oh, well, there is that. Okay, <laughs> not super young children. So there you go. Um, my point is that if you basically just need a commuter appliance, I cannot think of a more cost-effective one than that. Especially in California, is it still a like? Is it still eligible for California incentives? Because I think it is. A tiny bit of incentive. They are means tested in California, mind you. So keep that in mind for those uh, rich people that want to commute in their commuter car. Uh, and it is eligible for HOV stickers in California still. I think the best bolt, frankly, might be a used bolt since every single one of them now has a new eight year warranty on the battery plus a new battery. But I do think that if you're going to consider spending forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars on a large vehicle whose size and performance you don't need, consider this save the money. Like this is this is the economical argument, not the passionate argument. Mm -hmm. I've got passionate choices. But this is not that. <laughs> Maybe one of yours is more passionate, though, Alex. What have you got? For uh, me? Let's see here. So I don't know if it's more passionate, but also Chevy. So I actually think the Trailblazer is more underrated than the Bolt because the Trailblazer actually is quite good for a small crossover. It's fuel efficient. It's enormously practical on the inside. Uh, it's cheap. It just crested over $20,000 this year. They killed off the absolute base trim. Now it's 21,008, still well below the average new car vehicle price tag in America. And even though it's a little bit narrower than a Camry, honestly, it's about as roomy as a Camry in terms of real passenger dimension on the inside and has a bigger cargo area in the back. This is exceptional because big body on-frame SUVs notwithstanding, very few GM crossovers get positive reviews. They're almost always big for their price and big for their class, but deficient in every inside. other way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I'm not overly enthused by the Equinox or any of the Cadillac crossovers, etc. Trailblazer, somehow they hit the nail right on the head with that one. 
Yeah. So I did not expect to hear another Chevy on this list. So that actually, that is a very cool selection. My next one, depending on your view, is going to be the least cool or the most cool way to spend about 45 grand. But I think that the Chrysler Pacifica hybrid and the van life movement have conquered the mommy wagon stigma. I'm going to go with a Chrysler Pacifica hybrid. I'm going to get the most basic one available, hybrid touring L, about $51,000. I'm going to apply that full $7,500 federal tax credit, add a few well-chosen options. And, and I think this is genuinely an awesome way to get around. It rides like a luxury car. It's got more space than you'll ever need. It puts a full-size truck to shame when moving your friends. If you don't need to go more than 25 miles, it may as well be a pure EV. I genuinely think this to a certain generation is a pretty cool car. It's not the next Volkswagen van, mm -hmm. but I think it's more the next Volkswagen van than the coming electric Volkswagen van. Yes, and it's cheap. It leases really cheaply. So if you're at yes. all in this like, you know, I need a minivan because I have whatever number, insert your number of children, uh, but maybe I don't know if I need one long-term, they lease incredibly inexpensively. This last year, there were even... Uh, 199 leases with no money down. Currently, they're a little higher because everything is constricted in supply, but they've historically had incredibly cheap leases on the plug-in hybrid Pacifica. I actually even thought about getting one as a company vehicle for pickup and deliveries around here, but uh, the reason I didn't is because nobody wants to see a video on a Pacifica plug-in. Yeah. Between Chrysler and Kia, you've got two minivans that actually look pretty decent. They are not as overtly embarrassing as the old voyagers town and countries like they're they're decently cool and i also think that the generation that grew up with minivans the gen xers are never going to consider them but i do think millennials and gen y would definitely consider a minivan especially when you think about leasing options and the fact that with the Chrysler, there is a big fat tax credit available because of the size of the battery, something that will not be available to offset the price of a comparably equipped Toyota Sienna hybrid. The Correct. Sienna only comes as a hybrid. Now, it is true that if you go with a well-equipped XSE, it has a $44,000 base price. But again, that is more or less the price you're going to pay with the Chrysler. There are federal and state incentives available as long as you don't go too crazy. And there might even be some lease options available that make it exceptionally cheap to get into, like you said. Yeah. And oddly enough, the Pacifica Hybrid is smooth, is more refined than the Toyota Hybrid. And even though, according to the EPA, it should be less efficient, in our real-world driving, we had them the same week. The Pacifica was actually more fuel efficient uh, than the Sienna. The Sienna really seems to struggle with that, that four-cylinder hybrid system in a larger vehicle, especially Especially if you put seven people in it, some cargo in the back. Um, I mean, it, it really sounds like the squirrels under the hood are trying as hard as they possibly can. Yeah, and we are talking an enormous vehicle. This vehicle with the seats, with all the seats up and in, 32 feet behind the rearmost seat. We have 159 uh, cubic feet of passenger space. This is a vehicle that is not that much longer than a mid-size sedan. 204 inches is not that much bigger than something like a BMW 5 Series. Uh, so for the amount of volume you're getting, it's close to a mid-size sedan in terms of how it's actually going to handle around town. And it's more like a, fu a full-size truck in terms of how much stuff you yeah. will put inside it. And as Alex mentioned, even though it's rated at 30 miles per gallon, um, gas only compared to about, I want to say 36 for the Sienna in real world, it's going to be very, very similar.
Yeah. The Sienna is one of the few Toyota hybrids that actually seems to really hit below the EPA av average. Um, and the Pacifica is just a tiny bit above, but by the time you level them out, you know, we're at around 32 miles per gallon-ish. So hit me, what, what do you have next? What else is underrated in this market where everything's waitlisted? Uh, I would say that the Lincoln Corsair is an underrated luxury crossover. Uh, I like it because uh, sort of along the lines of uh, of, of other, you know, the, the, the Swedes in this segment, Volvo, Lincoln is marching to a different drummer. They're not trying to copy the Germans. They're not trying to copy Lexus. The Corsair is pillowy soft in its suspension tune. Um, the styling is definitely marching to its own drummer. And I think that's actually a little refreshing. Um, Lincoln also has some fairly reasonable uh, pricing on the Corsair. It's much less expensive than the Cadillac. Um, and I think that it really ought to sell better in its segment. Yeah, there's one common thread that unites just about all Lincoln crossover and SUV projects right now. And it's that inside they feel a little bit more expensive than they are. And if I had to really point to a couple of shining lights in terms of American interior design, uh, it actually be a bunch of big trucks right now. The Lincoln crossovers and SUVs, the Wagoneers, um, you know, this is really where it seems like American cars have gotten interior design right. They don't feel cheap in any way. They always feel one price class above where they're actually priced. Uh, you definitely feel it in the Navigator and the Aviator. And I'm actually glad to hear that the Corsair upholds that, too. Mm -hmm. Feeling like you're getting your money's worth often is a matter of perceived quality, which is actually something that Volkswagen does very well. That's why the Arteon, for me, I mentioned it previously, uh, but it is a liftback four-door coupe in the tradition of something like, I guess you could say an Audi A7, but for a lot less money. It's 300 horsepower. It's very sporty. For about $46,000 to a mid-level SELR line, which is really cool. They all have the same engine. Um, it's direct injected. It's very fuel efficient for what it is. Um, EPA is going to be about, uh, well probably 24, 25 yeah. combined. But these Volkswagen and Audi Turbo 4s generally punch above their weight in terms of actually getting great fuel economy, especially on the highway. So this is a sporty, rare, practical, fun-to-drive car that's reasonably priced. And I can almost guarantee that there will be no wait for a Volkswagen Arteon at your <laughs> Volkswagen dealer. Yeah, if you can find one. I'm not sure how many they're importing to the U.S. because it just does not sell well. I'm I'm torn on the Arteon a bit because it's not as roomy as I would like on the inside. The Stinger made a much better argument for itself in that form factor of vehicle, but it's basically dead now because nobody's buying either. Yeah, so I, I think it's a cool car. If you can find it, you'll probably pay something around list. There is no hue and cry for these things i look at it more as a two plus two coupe yes it's got a back mm -hmm. seat but like most of these four-door coupe type vehicles um you know they're not long-haul road trip seats but they're fine compared to a two-door four-seat vehicle it's going to be a lot better and compared to something like you know the mercedes cls which has traditionally had like a normal car trunk the lift back option with the seats down means it's actually a pretty good road tripper if you're cool traveling with just two people yeah I would say, you know, speaking of Stinger, uh, I yeah. thought about putting that on my list, but if you can still find one, because occasionally one gets sold, uh, the K900, I think, was actually more underrated than the Stinger was. Um, absolutely 
fantastic landing at the absolute worst airport ever. Um, you know, Kia had too many sedans in America. Nobody was going to be interested in a $55,000 Kia sedan. Why it ever came to the United States has more to do with Kia and their corporate structure and a sense of pride in their ability to build a vehicle um, because there was no way it was ever going to make money in America. And they brought it for two generations, gave it the old college try, uh, still exists elsewhere. Um, but if you're looking for, you know, a solid, reliable BMW 5 Series sized vehicle with twin turbo power and extremely high reliability, the Canon 100 is definitely there for you. Um, as long as you could handle the Kia logo on it. Yeah, I mean, there every once in a while, a vehicle comes over that's playing for pride without any real economic pretense. And that's how I felt about the original Kia Amante, which came over in the 2000s. And it was the full-size car from Kia that no one had asked for. And people <laughs> said, you know, Kia has built a better Buick, but no one wants Buicks. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's so, definitely a thing, yeah. I'm going to say this, though. The most underrated car on the market right now is actually a very high profile, super expensive borderline hyper car. And that is the 2022 Acura NSX Type S. The Macon 350, they're all sold out at over $171,000. But considering someone is about to pay $1 million on Bring a Trailer for a Lexus LFA Nürburgring, and those were still in inventory until September of 2020, it is amazing how quickly a car that most people don't rate to any degree whatsoever can become a collectible fetish. Remember, yeah. the last of the LFAs were made in 2012. They were still in inventory like, basically a year ago, and now someone's going to pay a million dollars for one. Think I just think that. the LFA was a better vehicle. I, I have to disagree on the, N, okay. on the NSX. Uh, I am not a fan uh okay. never oddly have been of this generation <laughs> uh and i've been to every nsx event that acura has held for it um i just for the price tag why wouldn't you buy i don't know anything else <laughs> i think it looks good um but also the nsx it's not it's not the pragmatic all-around supercar that that I might hope Acura could build. Uh, if I want a supercar from Acura or Lexus, I want it to be a little bit more practical, a little bit more pragmatic. Um, NSX doesn't manage to be that. Um, or I would want it to be balls to the wall, everything that that they could give me in a modern supercar, which it also isn't. Um, so it's it, it fills this weird, weird middle ground where you can get the performance and the handling ability, et cetera, in a 911 that is less expensive. Um, yeah. It I ends mean, up I, being I very feel... looks-based. Now, I'm going to, full disclosure, I have not driven the Type S. I've driven the original vehicle pre-facelift, mm -hmm. and my conclusion then was my conclusion now, that this vehicle is probably the fastest way to go down a road on the road. It's not a track weapon. It's probably mm -hmm. not the equivalent of some sort of Ferrari track-tuned hypercar. Um, if you're looking for the ultimate driving machine, that's a 911 GT3 RS. This is not that. What this is, is wonderfully easy to live with while also being flat in your face quick and reliable. And I think 
once you got into the NSX 3.2s, that car was not the best at anything compared to its competitive set in its day. Um, there was always a sexier Ferrari or Lamborghini than the LFA. And I think that if you go back and you look at the BMW Z8, it was never the best pure performance driving experience option. And for a long time, no one wanted to touch those. Mm -hmm. I think this car, more than the original NSX, is going to be a classic in the vein of the original Z8. It looks the business. It's fast enough. It's a great road driving experience. And the low production makes it incredibly compelling. It's it's a little tricky. It's like we don't know really how reliable the NSX actually is because nobody drives their NSX and they sell so few of them that every McLaren model is more popular than an NSX. Um, so with that kind of volume, honestly, we just there's there's the hope and the promise of Acura reliability. But let's be honest, Acura reliability isn't what it used to be. Um, so that said, um, I also think it's 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 peculiar compared to the LFA. LFA sounded fantastic. That V10 sounded like sex. The original NSX sounded great as well. So part of that was was in the equation. And part of the thing that I find funky with the NSX was Acura's decision to a not make a Corvette size a Corvette priced vehicle. I think the Corvette's a way better deal because it's a mid-engine supercar that is priced like a high-end Camaro. And the NSX is sort of the same thing, only we added an electric motor and priced it like two Corvettes. Um <laughs> and that that is part of the problem for me. And also, you know, the in the world of supercars being about look at me, look at me and hear me as I roar. The funny part of the NSX is that whole, you know, hybrid start-stop thing. So you roll up to the stoplight and you're you're rumbling down the road, vroom, vroom, vroom. And now we've downshifted to make it sound even more impressive. You come to the stoplight and it stops. And then it might start up again because the air conditioning needs to come on because it doesn't have an electric air conditioning compressor. And then it will stop again. And it will start and it will stop. And it, then it sounds like your NSX is broken to someone that doesn't understand that it's a hybrid because it's a pretty loud hybrid as far as the exhaust tune goes. And then you get it out on the track and it turns out that for the, you know, for actual real world racing, all the NSXs have the front motor removed um, because it turns out not actually the best thing to do. It also ends up being a little heavy. Um, I'm torn. I just wish the, I wish the NSX had been a Corvette competitor. If Acura had made it, you know, Corvette plus 15 grand they would have sold so many of these. And that would have been this generation's epic, attainable, desirable supercar. Sexy, mid-engine, whatever, um, more attainable, probably younger audience than, than Corvette. And instead, we have what we have. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, the sound. Remember, we're heading into an era when cars will make no sound except that weird spaceship warble that EVs make below 25 <laughs> miles an hour. So it might sound like, who knows, maybe it sounds like an Alfa Romeo Montreal to like the, the kid of the future who hears this car that makes any noise. It's going to sound like the best thing he ever heard. But I do think it's going to take, this is going to be a very controversial subject. This is going to be a very controversial car. And I don't think this argument will be settled until like 10 years from now on Bring a Trailer. So we're going to have to agree to disagree on the NSX. <laughs> right. I think it I think I'm sure I'm sure the values will be good on NSXs in the future. I just don't know if I would call it an underrated car.
Well, they didn't sell any of them, so I'm just going by the sales. If it were rated <laughs> or overrated, they, they would have sold like more than I can count on my toes, and they didn't. But, uh, you know, we shall see. Maybe the Type S was the car it should have been from the beginning, but they're only going to make 350 of them. Uh, I drove the Type S, and it was not vastly different from a non-Type S. But it looks better. It does look better. Um, yeah, it's it's the it's the swan song trim package, basically. <laughs> the unstoppable force meets the immovable object. I'm Tim, he's Alex, and thanks for logging on. Bye.